Okay, so what we started last week is a new series called Radical Generosity. And in this series, um, we're rethinking what we can bring to the table. Pun, visual pun intended here. That's why we have this table here. What we can bring to the table. Phil, you can go that way. Sorry, we trapped you there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm good here. Um, And really, that's... I mean, that's something that disciples of Christ are consistently called to do, is rethink how they view things in life, how they view their role in life, how they view their belongings in life, and their finances in life. I mean, that's just one small part of it. But in general, we're called to rethink how we view everything. The Bible calls it a little more formally, renewing your mind in Christ. So it says in Romans 12, 2, that we want to renew our minds and not conform ourselves, paraphrased, to the patterns of the world. So we don't think like the world We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We rethink and we renew our minds. And then there's some other passages that say that we have now the mind of Christ. So again, we don't think, I don't think like Ricardo anymore. I'm consistently challenging myself as a disciple to think the way Christ would. And in fact, it's not just something that I do as an exercise. The Holy Spirit empowers me to do that. It eventually starts molding and shaping by making me look inward and through prayer, it starts changing how I think about things. And often that relies on the Bible as well. We go to the Bible and we see what the Bible says about how we should think about things. And in this series, of course, the whole point is to rethink what we can bring to the table. Because when we think about generosity and what we can give a lot of times we're limited by our own thinking. We're limited by how we think about the things we have and what we can give. That's pretty much what happens. I'll give you a quick example of something that I discovered very early on when I was first driving, when I first got my driver's license. My mom and my dad, they put money together and they invested and they got me a cheap car. It was a Sunbird. It was like a 1992 Sunbird. And this was like, I don't know, 97, 98, 98. I'm dating myself, but yeah, 98, uh, 1998. I get this Sunbird, which would start literally half of the times. But yes, it was my car or was it? It was my car. That's the way I thought about it at first. And then things would happen like, hey, Ricardo, you need to take your sister to, to school. You need to pick her up from school. Like if I had a different schedule from her. You have to go pick her up. I'm like, no, I don't have to do that. Yeah, well, yes. Um, and you have to do it in your car. It's my car, Mom. Well, actually, it's not your car. It's in your father's name. And uh, you do every once in a while the things that you have to do. But also you have to do the things that we need you to do. So this is the car that's been assigned to you, but it's not really yours. The ownership, if you crash it, which I did, if you crash it, then you're going to get in trouble because it's not really yours. So you're supposed to use it. Now, that usage of it involves things that are for me, meaning practical uses of, of the things I have to get done, but also the people that are around me, the people that I'm here to serve. And see, a lot of times, when again, when we think about generosity, we have two baskets. This is how I think we view, not all of us. I mean, a lot of us, we've read the Bible and been through this. But the, the world, for example, when they hear us talk about giving in a godly sense, they think, okay, I have my basket here. In this case, it's full of markers. But this represents not just money. Let's think beyond that. This represents talents. This represents giftings. This represents influences, networks, the people that you interact with every day at work, at school, etc., etc. So this is all of those things that you have been called to, I guess, manage is the key word we'll get to in a moment. 
And we think, okay, so what am I supposed to give to God? This is the God basket. Okay, uh, all right, that's God's and this is mine. And uh, if I get more in here, then I can do a little more of that. If I get more in here, then I can do a little more of this. But that's kind of how the world views giving. We know better because we are in the process of renewing our minds. Now, if, if, there's, if you tune out of the message and you want to have that main point, the idea is that we're a manager of God's generosity fund. We're not owners of our money. We are managers of God's generosity fund. And when I say manager, the Bible, again, uses a, a fancier word. It's called steward. The only other time I've heard steward is in Lord of the Rings. The steward of Gondor. If, you, if you've read or seen the Lord of the Rings, well, the, Gondor had a steward. What's a steward? It's a manager. It means it's not yours. You're managing it. You're administrating. You can think of it as administrating. So the Bible tells us that Actually, this basket is all in there, all of it, in God's basket. And then, by viewing it here in, my, in God's basket, then I start passing over here, but still remembering, it's like my car, right? It's not really my car, it's my father's. Well, it's the same with these markers. This is, I'm really passing it from over here to here. See, God is being generous with me and with others that may be around. Just like... Sorry. But that, that's the idea, is that God gives us so that we can administrate His goods. Um, we will see that the Bible explains this with a couple of scriptures. The first one, the one that regards ownership. Who owns it? This is Psalm 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, verse 1. And it reads like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Just think beyond finances. Everything. I'm God's. My gifts are God's. Everything that we have in this world is really God's. He's the creator and he's the owner. It's all under his name. Um, I always, when, I, when, when people think about this, the, the, again, the worldly default might be to say, no, 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 give me this back. This is all mine because I worked for it, okay? I worked really hard and it was me getting up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. to drive all the way to I don't know where and to do my job and... I worked really hard. I worked my butt off to make sure that I had that money. It's mine, right? I earned it. But then God, of course, has an answer to that way of thinking. Because again, we're rethinking what we can bring to the table. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. This is the one that hit me when I used to think, well, I earned it. It's my money. I mean, I earned it. And in Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, it says... But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Ouch. That's where you, you kind of realize it's, it's not just that God uh, owns it because it's His, but also even because when we think about earning money, we're not really earning it. He graced us with the ability to earn it. He gave us the ability. I mean, when I think about, for example, where I work, I teach I can only teach because he gave me all of the life experiences and all of the gifts, giftings and all of the, the different points in life where he prepped me for that. 
If I wasn't good at teaching, I wouldn't have gotten that job. And if I wouldn't have gotten that job, I wouldn't be receiving that money. So God graces us with the ability to make the money. He's ultimately the provider. The world says, okay, I have a job, and my job is my means to earn my money. And God says, no, 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 no. You have a calling that I give you, and through that calling, I empower you to produce wealth that's really mine, and you're going to administer. You're going to take that basket and start putting it back over here because it's really God's. And once you put it all in there, then it's your job to do what an administrator does. Then you have to think about, well, how do I use it? Do I use it for myself? Do I use it for others? How much percentages? There's, there's no percentages, biblically speaking, about how... Uh, how much you should give to a certain person or this. Or th- the Bible only talks about tithing. And tithing, I guess, for Christians is the minimum. Minimally, we give, because that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were these, basically these religious dudes who thought they were really awesome and righteous and they didn't need Jesus' righteousness. Well, Jesus calls us, listen to this, he calls us to a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. So, in a sense, we're called to go beyond tithing. But there's no set number. It's really a heart issue. And that's something that how you choose to administer God's basket, that's something that it's between you and God. So I'm not here to tell you what percentages to use. You go ahead and talk that out with God. Now, where do, see, here's what we've seen so far. Yes, we're a manager of God's generosity fund. We saw Psalm 24.1 that tells us that God is the owner. Okay, and then we got another passage that tells us why he's the owner. That was Deuteronomy 18. It tells us he gives us the ability to produce wealth. So where does it tell us that we need to be managers? This word I'm throwing around, we need to administer. For that, we go to Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Luke chapter 16, verse 9. By the way, I tried to throw all of the scripture references on your notes there. You should be able to have them there so you don't need to focus on writing them down. Uh, so uh, some of them we won't read on screen and you can go home and read through them, pray through them and process them. But Luke chapter 16, verse 9 says this. I tell you, use worldly wealth, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, that's where we get the administration Component. In fact, if you go to that chapter and you read it a little bit, he is talking about uh, a steward or a manager, so to speak. And the whole point is that when I think about worldly wealth, what the world values as power, money or finances or possessions that keep dropping markers, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when we think about that, um, we need to understand that we are called to make these or gain these friends because we're administering to them, we're helping them. We're looking at their need and saying, how can I use God's money and administer it to all these people that I impact? And again, it's not just money. It goes beyond that. In fact, last week, Jason challenged us again to rethink what we could bring to the table. And he said, it's not even about how many markers you have in here. Maybe you just have two or three. But it's about the fact that you can bring what you have. You can bring it and administer it. And he actually gave a guitar away to Mikey, was it? Mikey? Yeah, Mikey, yes. Um, this is a little side note. Because of that, um, I have a book here. 
who's been lying around in my room. I bought it, and I'm, I'm, I already have a commentary on Galatians. This is a commentary on Galatians. It even has the receipt there. So anyone want this? Take it right now. Yes, come here. Come here. <laughs> Take it. You were the only one. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, it's just sitting in my room collecting dust, and it's brand new. It hasn't even been opened. The receipt is there, so here you go. It doesn't need to be a guitar. He outshined me with the guitar. No, I'm joking. <laughs> there you go. So we can, again, we've been dealt, given this, this lot of not just finances, books, guitars, talents that we can teach to others and so forth. How do we manage these? We want to gain friends. This is a little more than just, you know, friends the way the world uses it. This is Christian brothers, disciples that are walking with us uh, in our following of Christ. The second thing that we uh, are called to do or to remember as we rethink what we can bring to the table is that we don't give painfully. We cheerfully manage. God loves cheerful managers. And I'm only changing the word. The original word is uh, that God loves a cheerful giver, but I'm changing it to manager in the context of that because we're giving what wasn't ours. We are cheerful givers, but we're giving what is God's. We're administrating it. So God calls us to be a loving, cheerful manager. The passage that I'm referring to for that is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Here it says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Again, the percentage issue, that's you. That's in your heart with God. Not reluctantly, though, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That means that again, pardon the illustration, but I'm just like handing out like, yes, I want to help my brother. I want to help my sister. I want to make sure that they have what they need if I see a need in their lives. So it's calling us to be cheerful. Now, when you think about a cheerful giver, this is a person that again, you just can't help it. This is a person who understands grace so much that they want to be graceful to others and administer that which isn't theirs, as much as they can. Again, not a percentage issue. But what can I do to help A, B, or C? And again, have that cheerfulness about you. Now, I, I always wondered, well, this is saying, could this be saying that I need to be cheerful to give? So if I don't feel nice about it, should I not give? You know, oh, I don't feel good about it today, so I'm not giving. Well, the Bible teaches us a little more. It goes beyond that passage, and it says also that Giving will produce joy. So if you're having a trouble with finding joy and cheerfulness to give, realize that God, through your giving and through your trust, your reliance and saying, all right, I'm going to give even when I don't feel like it, God will produce joy and cheerfulness in your life. For that we go to Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's a realization that is mentioned here, that is the one that basically tells us that giving will produce joy in us. So in verse 35, it says in Acts chapter 20, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, blessed is a packed word, and I'm not expecting to unpack uh, what blessing is meant there, but it encompasses many things. And one of them is cheerfulness, joy. 
It will produce joy. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more joyful to give than to receive. It is more cheerful to give than to receive. It makes you happier to give than to receive. That's what blessed is. It blesses you and then it expands and just fills you up to the brim with joy that just comes out. You can't contain it. So not only am I called to give cheerfully, but also I'm called to give to be cheerful, to be joyful because God blesses me. It is more more blessed to give than to receive. When we rethink what we need to bring to the table, we're really, just going back to the previous series, thinking about radical love. Radical generosity is just a form of radical love. It affects everything that we do. And so... When we think about radical generosity from that sense and with the joy that we just talked about, we have that joy in God produces radical generosity. Because again, joy in God produces radical love, but one of the ways it manifests itself is that it gives you also radical generosity. So again, joy in God produces radical generosity. I'm going here again to 2 Corinthians. There's a reason for it. There's a theme there about giving cheerfully because you understand the grace of God and, and it just makes you happy. So here we are, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. Churches, excuse me. In the, this is the part that blows me away. In the midst of a very severe trial. In the midst of a very severe trial. Not when I can give, but in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. It doesn't say poverty. It says extreme poverty. And their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now again, I wish I had time that we, so we could sit down and unpack what that all encompasses. But that... Just think about the contrasts that are there. Overflowing joy in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty. Not trial and poverty. Severe trial, extreme poverty. And what happens? They weld up in rich generosity. Like they're a rich man walking around handing you know, things to people. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. That's insane. They, they, don't, they can't afford it. And they're saying, God, give, please, church, give me the privilege to be an administrator of the little that I have. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, notice that last verse there in, in verse 4. Entirely on their own, not forced, not feeling like it's a religious need. It's not something that, oh, I have to feel guilty and then I'll give. No, it's un- entirely on their own. The, the poverty and the overflowing joy in the midst of severe trial welled up in rich generosity. Let me have the privilege of being God's manager. They urgently pleaded so that they could be, they could have that privilege of sharing. Again, of being a manager for God. There's just a supernatural joy that flows out when you give that way, when you give radically. And again, this need not mean money. It could be much more beyond that. Books, guitars, lessons, helping, gardening, you name it. We go a little further in that chapter, 
2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 9. And we see why it is that that joy overflows. Why it is that we want to administer to people. Why we want to manage what isn't mine, but is God's, to other people and to myself as well. And so in verses 7 through 9 in the same chapter. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Grace, giving. Right there, put together. Grace and giving. See, God gave us favor that we didn't deserve with his grace. So again, grace and giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And here it is. Here's the big reason. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's not talking about finances here. It's talking about something entirely different and way more beyond that. He became poor, meaning he humbled himself. He became a servant. He took the form of man and walked on earth and received the punishment that was due to us. That's what it means to say he became poor. This is the God that sits, this is Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. He humbles himself, as Philippians says, and he comes down, takes the form of a servant. He became poor so that we could become rich. What does that mean? So that we can have that placement that he has. The Bible says that after we've become his disciples, we will be seated in the heavenly realms with him. You've been made rich. Rich beyond your wildest dreams. Rich beyond anything this earth could ever encompass or try to measure. So that joyful generosity that wants to seek and help. And like, I can't even, I don't know, man. I I don't have cash with me, but can you give me a second? I'm going to go to the ATM. I'm going to buy you some Chick-fil-A. Or I'm going to, you know, I, I I have some old clothes. You want that? I could go grab that, put it in a bag and give it to you. That generosity is the result of understanding what Jesus did for you. You want to be graceful because God was graceful towards you. It's just an overflow of joy because of that. That's what it means to be joyful because of His grace. Lastly, though, we have that the greatest joy and treasure is found in Jesus. And I really want to take a moment to talk about what this means because this is the key not just to giving this is the key to every behavior that we want to change in our lives the greatest joy and treasure is found in jesus there's this pastor uh, that i read a lot from his his blogs his videos his i listen to his podcasts his sermons his name is john piper some of you know him and The lemma behind his organization, which is called Desiring God, the lemma behind his organization is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And when you go and read his literature, he unpacks it biblically. It's not just something, some theory that he has. He shows you with passages like Philippians and others what that means and why it is that we glorify God when we satisfy ourselves in Him. See, C.S. Lewis talked about this too. C.S. Lewis said, look, it's like if if someone invites you to go to a really fancy steak place, really good steak place, and you say, no, 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 I want to go to Burger King. I, I I want their meat. I want the Burger King meat. It's right there. I can get it now. It's... I have to drive far away to get to that steak place. I want this right now. I I really want meat. I'm hungry. I can't wait. 
And the person's like, no, no, don't you see? We, we go to a better place. You get something that will satisfy you way more than that. When we sin in any aspect of our life, what we're doing is exchanging a subpar pleasure for the fullest pleasure, the maximum satisfaction that God provides. And this is biblical. Again, if we choose to satisfy ourselves and to find the greatest joy and treasure in God because He provides it, He is our greatest joy and treasure, if we do that, then we, we will stop seeing, we're rethinking how we see other things. We see them as temporary passing and just not sufficient. This will never fill me. God's glory, God's love, the display on the cross, the blood shed for me, that is pleasure and joy that surpasses anything that any temporary thing could do for me. There's a couple of passages that really support this. There's Matthew 13.44. I love this one because it really kind of closes everything we've discussed together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he did again, he, he hid it again, excuse me, and then his, in his joy, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. So again, all that I have here, this basket, I'm going to sell it so that I can get the greatest treasure, the greatest joy. He went in his joy. That means he goes like this. He's like, yes, I just sold my Ferrari. Woo! I just, you know, I just did something stupid in the eyes of the world. I gave all this stuff so that I can follow the greatest treasure and that be my joy. So again, this, this is encompassing in very simple two sentences, encompassing this principle. There are other passages that support us though. And they might not be on screen, but you have them there on your notes. And I'm going to read through them because they're just super powerful. Psalm 1611. Psalm 16 is beautiful, but I love its exclamation point at the end. And I don't mean literal exclamation point. I just feel like it's a theological exclamation point. At the end of Psalm 16, it says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with Joy. There it is. Joy. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures. Again, these temporary pleasures won't do with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I mean, that is powerful. Joy in your presence. You're in the presence of God. In the presence of God. Not because of your merit, but because He made you rich. Because He became poor so that you could become rich by being in His presence, receive eternal pleasures at the right hand. Philippians 1, verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you read that passage, if you go into Philippians and you read what he's talking about, he's saying, man, if it was up to me, I would love to die right now so that I could be with Jesus. For me... To live is Christ and to die is gain so that I can be with him. And if you read the passages that follows that, he talks about it. Like, well, right now God needs me here, but I want to be in the presence of Christ. I'd rather die and be there. That's, again, radical joy. Wanting to die to be in his presence. Philippians, same book, but chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. But whatever were gains to me, again, over here, the things that I had that I thought were good, but they're temporary. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. I'm rethinking it, right? 
for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, all of that, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That is the treasure. That is the greatest joy. Knowing Him. Being able to say, He calls me friend. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ. The creator of the world. The the entity that breathes life into us. That creates everything and that sustains us. He says, I want to have a relationship with you. Let me make you rich. Rich beyond any worldly riches. Beyond any worldly riches or pleasures, temporary pleasures that you can find. Let me give you the greatest joy and satisfaction and surpassing worth in me. In you being able to say, I call you friend. and you being able to say that I can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Whenever we're in need, we can approach Jesus. That's just powerful, surpassing worth. He's the greatest treasure. He's the greatest joy. I mean, joy, again, remember, try to follow where we've been through in these points. We said joy is what produces that radical administering, that radical generosity. Well, God is saying, I am your maximum joy. And if you find your joy in me, that's going to be the natural overflow. You're going to want to give to people. God says in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I grew up thinking a Christian has to be unhappy. I grew up in a very religious environment and, and feeling guilty and feeling down all the time. And I think God allowed that in my life for a reason so that I can appreciate better the grace that's given to me. And I'm so happy that I'm freed from all that. And God walked me through religious things and brought me to be a new creation not something that tries to obey all these little you know old details that they had to follow in the old law but now you live as a new creation you have the holy spirit and you produce fruit of righteousness i'm not trying to to please god i i am god is pleased in me he is pleased in me because jesus christ died for me, and now he's pleased in me, and because he's pleased pleased with me, because I've been made rich, I want to walk the right way. The surpassing worth, I prefer this now. This is what makes me happy. This is my joy. He says again in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. We're called to be happy in Christ. Doesn't mean we don't suffer, but the surpassing worth of that joy is always what keeps me afloat when the suffering happens, when the stuff happens. That's what it means to say rejoice in the Lord always. The funny thing is this, we've been reading passages from Philippians in this last bullet point, and he was in house arrest when he wrote this. Paul, I mean. He was in house arrest. He didn't have any reason to be happy. He's talking about that he could be happy whether he's rich or poor, whether he has or doesn't have. It's because he's really now taken to heart that surpassing worth of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always if you're arrested. Rejoice in the Lord always if you don't have enough. Rejoice in the Lord always if you've been given a severe trial or affliction. In the midst of severe trial, I rejoice in the Lord and I give. My talents, my networks, my interactions, all the things that I have to my disposal so that I can bless others as I have been blessed. I grace others because I've been graced by God. It's just powerful. 
if we were to summarize all of this, I have a picture here that kind of summarizes everything we did. I wrote this on my iPad, so that's why it looks kind of crappy. <laughs> that's my actual handwriting. I'm not blaming the iPad for that. That's my actual handwriting. But here's the summary of everything we've looked at. If we kind of backtrack, the summary is, God is my joy and treasure. I think we've really gone into a lot of passages that defend that. The result of God being your joy and treasure is that it produces radical generosity. And that means cheerful giving and good management. That's the, if, if you're taking home a summary from all of these bullet points, this is how it all connects. This is the diagram that puts it together. Joy and treasure in God produces radical generosity. I'm a cheerful giver. I give happily because I'm administering, so I'm a good manager. But here's the point. It goes beyond finances and possessions. It goes beyond, it goes to many other things. And it doesn't even have to stop at generosity of other things or talents or or dispositions. It goes beyond that. If we go to the next slide, we'll see that this applies to everything. God is my joy and treasure and it produces a new behavior in you. Radical love. See, radical generosity is just one form of radical love. And this is the key to our walk. Where do I find my joy and treasure? Do I occasionally seek the things that don't please me as much? Or do I find my greatest satisfaction in the one that calls me friend? The one that made me rich, that became poor so that I could become rich? This is the key to our walk. And it affects giving. And it affects all other areas. It leads to radical love. God being your joy and your treasure. I pray that we as a church find ourselves always meditating on that and praying on that and saying when we pray every day and worship God in our prayer, say, God, you're my greatest treasure because you called me friend. Because you decided to make yourself poor so that I could become rich in righteousness. That's just mind-blowing. Just meditating on that will start changing how you view things. And when you see the Burger King Whoppers, you'll be reminded of God's filet mignon. <laughs> you'll be reminded of that. It's, it's, again, it's just a transforming way of viewing things. It is ultimately what being a disciple of Christ is. You sell everything you have, so to speak, meaning all the things that you valued are worthless. They're garbage compared to what God offers. As the band starts coming up and as the ushers start coming up so that um, we can bring our our tithes and offerings. I'll close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, may, may we be a, a church that finds joy and satisfaction and treasure and ultimate beauty and glory in you, Lord. That that may transform how we view other things. That we may always be reminded of your surpassing worth. That that joy of having you as our treasure lead and produce to radical generosity. May it produce a radical generosity that says, I am a manager, not an owner of my assets. And that wants to give back to people cheerfully and help them. I pray that this may happen by your Holy Spirit, that it may empower us. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.